Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. This is the first of a two-part episode uh, with Gregory Kamichik as the guest. And Gregory Kamichik is a author and illustrator, you know, a writer uh, of you know a variety of different media. He writes, you know, prose fiction. He's written children's uh, stories that others have illustrated. Um, he has done a fair bit of writing, you know, just as a writer, but he also is an illustrator. Uh, he illustrates for other people. He most recently illustrated the Baby Metal graphic novel, a really excellent uh, book that I recommend highly. Uh, not that it needs more recommendations, you know, because it's selling like crazy, but you should, before they're all gone, you should go get yourself a copy of the Baby Metal uh, graphic novel. And if you don't know who Baby Metal is, um, I will put a link in the show notes to uh, a music video and some information by Baby Metal. Uh, so Baby Metal is a sort of weird Japanese pop metal band. Uh, so it's interesting, worth checking out. I'll have some links to some Baby Metal videos in the show notes, like I say. Uh, that's at jonathanball.com slash 15. So jonathanball.com slash 15, the numbers, the numerals, 15. Um, and Gregory Kamichik also writes and illustrates his own work. So he's done some graphic novels uh, of his own. He's done, uh, again, illustrations for other people, other writers. He's written just, you know, without illustration or with other illustrators, you know, especially for this children's book, Cassie and Tonk, which I really recommend. It's one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And it's this wonderful picture book. Um, beautiful in terms of his writing. You know, the story is just, you know, a very powerful story. But also the artwork by Justin Curry is really exceptional. Justin Curry, a.k.a. Chasing Artwork. Um, so anyway, Gregory uh, was kind enough to be my guest for two different classes at the University of Winnipeg. Um, so this is the first of two classes. Uh, the second one will be in next episode where we have Gregory Kamichik in the class and answering student questions. So I'm kind of um, asking a series of questions to him that students have prepared. And then every once in a while, you'll have a student actually come in with a question uh, as well. Uh, so again, this is the first of a two-part episode. Um, this is jonathanball.com slash 15. You can get more information about Kamichik, uh, links to his books, um, information about Baby Metal, this uh, new comic uh, graphic novel that he's done, uh, and... Some music videos for Baby Metal too. If you haven't heard of Baby Metal, you really gotta, you know, check Baby Metal out. Um, without further ado, here's the first of two parts. Uh, questions answered by Gregory Kamichik. Wait, before we start, can I like impose my will upon the group? Yes. So Greg has this thing he does. Greg, Greg used to be. A it's teacher. not a thing I do. It's good pedagogy. Maybe I'll just, you know, officially start. You can start. We'll record, start recording with you. Yelling at them. Around. Um, so, so we this have is your these, formal introduction to Gregory that's right. So we have these things in our heads called mirror neurons, and they work best when we're close to people. Your mirror neurons, super active, because your feet are crossed, your hands are in exactly the same position. It's the absolutely showing it work. So we're going to make it work better. So we're going to play a little game called Human Tetris. So if you're way in the back, you're just going to go like boop, 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 until you're closer. So speaking of speaking up, does anyone want to just jump out with a question at Greg? Otherwise, I'll, I mean, again, we can just... But wait, I need to know a little about my group. The master question that everybody has 
is you have a list they gave you questions ahead of time I, I have a list and I combined questions into like multi-pronged questions oh. so the master question that almost everybody has in is where did this idea for the Midnight City book slash series come from how did you develop that idea what 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 year is this how right far are they this what is first year. This is first year of university, but they've had 12 years of educating before now, in theory, up until now, right? I'm just getting a You're sense the of the room. Right. So if that's true, you can do better than that as your first question. Where did the idea come from? That's not even a value to you guys. Even if I told you exactly where, you couldn't go there, and it wouldn't help you, right? I think what's at the heart of the question, where does the idea come from, is how do I know if my ideas are any good? I think that's what people are really asking when they ask that. And I have no idea if my ideas are any good. In fact, I can be sure that some of them aren't. But you put them out into the world and the feedback you receive decides what you should do next. Do more of what's working is a good general rule as a writer. Like, if you, have a, if you have a professor, a hypothetical professor, not queuing anyone in particular, and you know that they like an answer a certain way, and you don't give it to them, and you get a bad mark, that's not the professor's fault, right? That's your fault, because you knew the rules, and you broke them. However, if you go to that same professor and you say, I'm so tired of giving you the answer that I know you want, can you challenge me in a new way? You may then take the reins of your education and do something new and exciting, right? Greg, by the way, got thrown out of university. I did, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> Before, just as a, prep, a quick postscript to that yeah, postscript. piece of advice. Yeah, one time I got thrown out of university and told you can never return for these kinds of ideas. I then returned to that university some years later and uh, got a three-year degree in two years. So that's not being boastful, that's simply saying that if you know the way the system works, you can use that system to your own advantage. And very much taking control of your education. That's yeah. Why I like to ask that question, I knew that you like, Don't take night something. classes, for example. Take summer courses. Every time like I drop out of this and take a summer course. <laughs> it takes way less of your time, and your test will happen two weeks in. You didn't, don't even have to study. You haven't even had long enough to forget it, right? Like, look at how your, your time is valuable. I think the question people really have when no, they No, I want to attack education is, for the rest of this. Oh, hour. Not, no, I'm just kidding. Got okay. questions about your education. We'll get back. We'll get back. Um, I think the question, I mean, I always throw that question first because people always ask it. And I, like you, I don't think it's a good question. But it's, you know, it's a question people, I think, secretly have another question that they don't know what it is. Yeah. And I think the real question is either that, like how you know if ideas are good. Because everybody has ideas. You know, Can we ask said, them a question? Yeah, why don't you ask them a question? Why do you care where the idea came from? Why is that of value? That's like, this is me, like this is not me on a soapbox now. This is me like legitimately asking of the only people who can qualify their answer. Why is that of value? But that is the most common question anybody asks an artist. Yeah, where do you get your ideas? Uh, sec followed up almost immediately by how long did that take to make it? Right? Um, both of them, I think, are at their heart, people trying to let themselves off the hook for not making things. Right? They want to hear that it took you a long time and that it was hard to find the idea. But the truth is, ideas are easy, and it doesn't take that long to make a book. So really, if you didn't make one, it's your fault. 
Right. Well, it can take a long time, but but if it, it does, but, but if you if your process is wrong, right? So well, yeah, I, think the I didn't say they're really any good. Question. No, but hold on, let's quantify that. Making something is easy. Making sure. something of value is hard. We misrepresent art as being special. Art is not special. Art is common. We can all make art. Whether or not other people will like it, that's a market force question, right? Like whether or not it can, and what people are really asking is, can I make money off of it, right? So if we take money out of the conversation and simply say, can you make something? The answer is yes. Does it take very long? No. Do the ideas have to be special? No. And you can have something. Whether or not it's a value is a completely other conversation. I got a friend really angry at me once because he was complaining about, I was on the phone with him and he was complaining about his writer's block. He's like, I don't know what to write about. I'm like, oh, why don't you open your fridge and what, write about what's in your fridge? Mm. And he got mad at me, but it's a good answer because it doesn't matter what you're writing about fundamentally. Like how you're writing about it is going to make yeah. you know, the, the ultimate difference. If you write. If you write anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, let's just so Wait, this is first year? The first, you first guys year. are first years? No. He didn't, no. What are well, you? Well, some of them are not, but it is a first year class. Second year? Yeah. Two? All right, hold up by, like, show me your note. Three, okay. Oh, then you guys are ready for deep stuff, right? Or you're scared of it because now at three, you only have maybe one or two years left, and then the real world is there. So you better just. Can I tell you my favorite question that somebody asked? Was, yes. How are you able to draw such detailed and realistic corpses? Oh my God. I Did you have use a, a reference? Answer. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So you want the answer to the realistic corpses? Don't do that, please. I uh, <laughs> I am uh, doing this on purpose yeah. because he asked me not to. Right. I, uh, so realistic corpses goes like this. I had a friend uh, who was the assistant coroner uh, up in uh, the Yukon for a brief stint, and when we were talking about working on this book, I brainstormed a lot of like creepy stuff with her because she was just into the macabre a little bit, and I said, you know, I have this thought that I'll do an autopsy sequence. And she was like, oh, well, that's great. And I said, but you know, I don't really know what to look up. And there's, you know, like, I watch too much true crime, which I, and I've read too much true crime, which I know is all a false representation of what an autopsy system is like. And she said, yeah, absolutely not real at all. Uh, I'll send you something and that'll be everything you need to know. Um, and in the way that your friend says something like, I saw this cool website, I'll send it to you later. My guard was completely down. And so when the link came through and I opened it, it was a recording of a real human autopsy. And I couldn't look away. And I just wish I'd never seen it. And so uh, I thought that I would distill some of that horror onto the page so that you had to suffer with me. Um, the interesting parts about it are that the the benign parts were what were the most terrifying, which doesn't come across on the page at all. You know, I had to put little tentacle bits in it and make it look scary and change the color scheme so that it felt scary in the way that just a regular human corpse being cut apart with such disdain uh, has traumatized me deeply. I was Thanks for asking that question. <laughs> My question is, how did you know? Who asked that question? How do you know how realistic that corpse was? Yeah. So <laughs> how yeah. do you know that it is a realistic looking corpse? Because that's a very good question. It's a very good eye. So Maybe you, not a question you want the answer to. Are you to. a medical student? Or is, no, I, I'm a 
Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Just like Mr. Kamichik here. Yeah. I don't like. I found out that mostly. I mean, for a good long time, we saw on TV, right, this like idea of the Y incision and the body lying down. Often autopsies are not performed lying flat because then things will congeal. The table is elevated so everything will slush out of the body so that it's away from you while you're doing stuff. And if you ever have a, you know, have to have an autopsy done to yourself, they take all of your organs out, they put them in bags to weigh them, and then they just sew all that stuff back up inside you and send the corpse back to the family. So it looks from the outside like it's supposed to be, but everything is just in whatever order they felt like stuffing it back into you when they sewed you back up, right? And they'll sometimes duct tape you to be the right shape after when they put you back. So, yeah. So there you go. That's my favorite right? question. So research can affect you, I guess, is a, is a practical application here. Know what you're asking about and know that if a person is qualified to give you the real answer that you really want it. Uh, in retrospect, what I should have done is sat down uh, with this person and said, describe to me <laughs> the steps involved, not please show me a video that I can never unsee. So, yeah. Next question. Yeah. Any questions anyone wants to leave out with? A number of questions related to what you're just talking about is about your research process because, of course, not only are you um, you know, researching autopsies, but you've got all these, uh, I, I prefaced in the previous class, I give it a background and some context for some of the big influences here. Ooh. You know, the Lovecraft as an influence. Oh, like in noir, the story itself, yeah. Yeah, noir yeah. as an influence and um, uh, uh, superhero comics, uh, pulp, like golden age comics. Uh, but one thing I didn't really talk too much about, although I briefly mentioned it, is that you're drawing a lot of inspiration from public domain superheroes right so could you talk a bit more about that uh, and there's a number of questions around like how, how did you come up with the character design of particular characters especially like the bats uh, spirit character okay the so that detective there's like a it's it. and how did you research that yeah okay so there's a big answer to there's a there's more than one question there mm -hmm. um, so firstly why Midnight City and why Infinitum, the book that preceded this, are that um, I had this opportunity where a documentary film crew was going to follow me around for part of a year and document my creative process. And I thought, like, the creative process, like, actually watching it happen, it's kind of boring. So instead, what I'll maybe do for them is I'll pitch the two most people who work in genre literature at all have two stories hidden away in their mind. They're the two most difficult to pull off, I think, and everyone has their version of them. The time travel story and the cosmic horror story, right? Everyone wishes they were H.G. Wells or wishes they were H.P. Lovecraft at some point in being a genre writer. And so I thought I would pitch these two projects to a publisher while they were following me around so that when I got all the horrible rejections, it would be fun. Um, fast forward to actually having to make the books that was a whole other issue. But um, I often say that Midnight City is pulp era and golden age characters versus H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells monsters. Um, and one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is that I had a career trajectory in mind where it might be fun to reimagine or reinterpret other people's characters, a la Marvel, DC, Boom, Valiant, any of these companies. And you can only do more of what you've already done. So if you've never done that before, they're not going to give you that as a job. And so I thought another sort of 
smart way to approach the project would be to then take a bunch of things out of the public, public domain and reimagine them so that if I pitch a project to someone and they say, well, that's pretty good. Have you ever done anything like that? I'd at least have this to show them along the way. The public domain is uh, full of stuff and Midnight City is essentially predicated on the idea that if you were standing in a newsstand in 1933, that everything on the newsstand there was all happening in the same world. Because most of that stuff was in the public domain, so I pulled from pulp novels, magazines, stories, uh, imagery, comics, and I just imagined that they were all percolated in the same place, and they were all from the same stuff. The black bat, for example, I didn't make up the black bat. I only added the accoutrements. The black bat is essentially uh, Batman, um, came out in a very similar publishing schedule. The story as it stands is that the reason Batman doesn't use a gun uh, in DC Comics is because the company that owned the Black Bat sued them for copyright infringement um, when the first issue of Batman came out and he did use a gun because he was so close to the Black Bat. So he swore off guns and legally he was different enough that they could continue publications. So that's fascinating because that's of course one of the most notable things about Batman. Is he doesn't use a gun. He yeah. doesn't use a gun. Yeah. And, and if Bob Kane had had his druthers he would have shot those criminals. Well, blam blam. It, it occurs to me that it kind of connects to something else that I wanted you to talk about, which is I, I find a lot of times what people are doing when they're trying to make a career in some sort of artistic form is they're looking at their heroes, you know, looking at the people that preceded them, they're you know, looking at their influences and they're trying, on one hand they're trying to copy them, on the other hand they're trying to, you know, very, be very conscious of not copying them. And w what I find like often makes a difference with people is if they're doing something wrong and they're aware that they're doing a thing wrong, uh, what I often see is like the most interesting people are the people who keep doing the thing wrong, but it's finding like some way to do it properly, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, well, yeah, like our style is the mistake that we make over and over again. We just yeah. make it consistently and then people recognize you by that mistake and call it your style. And I yes. think sometimes like uniqueness or you know originality is this weird result of doing things improperly, uh, either because you don't realize you're doing it improperly, or I think more interestingly, in like an extremely intentional manner. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, to kind of, when I look at your visual style and like how it's kind of been developing, it's, it's very interesting to me, to me because it's, it's, it's a, what I would describe as a, a non-illustrative style, hmm, compared to like say a normal yeah. superhero comic. and. What, it, what would have in the initially, I think, and I imagine, I'm guessing you got a lot of feedback along these lines. What, I, what I'm imagining you early on got in terms of feedback and rejection oh, so was people rejection. saying, yeah. this doesn't look like a normal yeah. comic and I, I can't follow the story and the geography of what's going on in this scene. Uh, and yeah, there's instead a of like, but you kind of like ran away from that and kind of further into the thing you were doing. Uh, like now you can see the geography a bit more clearly and so on, but well, you so kind of started commentating with these heavy like chunks of, you have like pages of just text and blackness, whereas normally you don't see that in comics. Yeah, so I have this, you know, maybe it's a wrong-headed conceit that uh, people can, who are reading can read, <laughs> right? Like I know that sounds very like lofty, but like, so is there anything wrong with putting a whole page of story so that they get more story for their dollars? Like in comics are becoming increasingly more and more expensive, 
right? They used to be a dime and now they're $5, right? So if you're going to have someone put down $5 for a single issue of something, why not give them a full reading experience? This is sort of my, the hill I want to die on, if you will. But it also kind of works with a, a, a less illustrative style. Like a lot of the times, you know, a lot of text isn't necessary because a lot of the visuals are doing it's like storytelling work. Your visuals still do so, a lot of storytelling work, but you have a lot of the story you'll just say in these, <laughs> like rather than like. Yeah, I'm not interested. Okay, so uh, in typical comics, you have. Um, so in storytelling in general, you have what are called movements and you have moments, right? So movements are things that happen in the plot. Right? Someone has to defuse a bomb, someone has to get to the getaway point, someone has to get somewhere, someone has to tell their lover that they'll never see them again. These are plot elements, right? Those are movements. And then moments are the times when character development is happening, where two people in a room, in a scene, are sharing something that is a human moment, right? Comics are really great at movements, and I think can be very poor at moments. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the work that I'm doing is sort of invert that. Uh, and sometimes I get it, I think, and sometimes I miss the mark totally, but it doesn't stop me from trying over and over. Um, I'll point out that when I write for other illustrators, uh, so I write for other illustrators, I illustrate for other writers, and I write and illustrate my own work. So my work is very different when I write and illustrate it myself than when I'm collaborating with other writers. So Apocrypha, the geography of the scenes is much more established. Uh, the two shots, three shots, where people are in the scene, how we're moving through the scene, if, if you thought about it like film, where the camera is and where the people are in relation to each other, is a lot more established in that because I'm collaborating with another person's vision. And so it has to be easier for them to lay their thoughts and ideas upon it. But if I'm writing it and illustrating it myself, I can pick the word and pick the picture to create juxtaposition, to create a draw, to create a new emotion, idea, or thought, or miss one of them, right, by putting those two things together. I also feel you don't have as much interest in plot, generally speaking. Not that you don't have plots, yeah, no. but I just don't feel like, they tend to have like a surreal development. Depends on the project, or, like Infinitum is super plot heavy, but it's mm -hmm. shorter, and Midnight City isn't really about a plot. They can't stop, okay, so, Midnight City is based in this concept of cosmic horror, right? First sort of put upon the writing scene by H.P. Lovecraft. No, popularized, I guess, by H.P. Lovecraft. This idea that the forces at work that are so alien and beyond the human experience can't be stopped, can't be reasoned with. A hero cannot change fate if these cosmic forces are aligned against you. This idea meant that Midnight City wasn't about a a plot wasn't going to help them win, right? There was no singular thing they could try to accomplish that was going to help them win. It was about the three volumes are sort of this creeping dread where no matter the fact that there are superheroes in the world, they're doomed. The joke I often make is like Midnight City, the series, is come for the superheroes but stay to watch them die, <laughs> right? They're not... Um, when humans face other humans and use superstition against them, they can get a lot out of it, right? If I convince you of something, some superstition, like, hey, don't go out after three o'clock or the boogeyman's gonna get you, right? When three o'clock rolls around, you're looking around for the boogeyman, right? But it's just a superstition. In Midnight City, the mystery men and women use superstition against the criminal underworld 
and then themselves are hunted by things that are actually supernatural. And when they face them, they're like, oh shit, this thing I've been impersonating is real, and it's way more dangerous than I even pretended. You know, it's like, um, like when kids play cops and robbers, right? The reality of police shooting a criminal in the street is not funny or frankly something kids should be pretending to do, right? But yet we encourage it. So what's, could you talk a bit about your attraction to Lovecraft? Because I, I find the writer Turgenev once called Dostoevsky the most evil Christian I have ever met in my life. And because Dostoevsky was writing these extremely like aggressively almost atheistic novels to prove Christianity's greatness. You know, and, and he would make these, you know, he would advance these tremendous like nightmarish like attacks on Christianity and then try to like undo the attacks in the rest of the novel. And, you know, it was very unconvincing in that manner. Uh, but then the other thing that was kind of, of course, at the root of the Dostoevsky made claims like he once claimed that, you know, he, if Christ and the truth were diametrically proven to be opposed, then he would side with Christ and not the truth. <laughs> you know, and I feel like your position relative to cosmic horror is kind of similar because, I mean, I don't, I see you as a person who's fundamentally optimistic in various ways, but I like to think of you as like the most pessimistic optimist I know. <laughs> I'm super, I'm very optimistic about the human condition, just not about how it's all going to work out for us, <laughs> right? Um, but I think that horror in and of itself isn't about the monster, right? At its, at its core, stories that are intended to be scary, if they work right, are about a, an individual struggling against an impossible odd. That's why we like them, right? Because you can put yourself, however briefly you can put your own horrible life aside for a moment and root for someone else in their horrible experience, <laughs> right? And you, they're escapist without being reductive. I think that's why horror is enduringly popular, right? It's not because people want to read disgusting things, right? It's because we all know deep down that there are horrible events happening all around us all the time, and we just pretend they aren't, right? So when you pretend they are, and you suspend your disbelief, and you read the story, you have this euphoric sense of freedom. It's like a trapeze walk be between like the, the line of what is accepted in society and the fall of what you're not supposed to do is all tangled up in why we like horror. Uh, my daughter once said of you that she's like, I know, she met you, she's, uh, we were just like leaving from where you were kind of thing, and she was like, it's like, Greg always gets me fired up and feeling energetic, I go, but also he won't let you forget that death is around the corner. That's true, <laughs> it's coming for us all. Um, it's coming for us let's all. Let's just kind of jump into some, you know, does anyone have some, like a broader question they want to dive in, or like a more specific question about the book? They want or to a ask. silly question, or a silly like something question. that you think is just like, you just want to know, but you don't think it's very profound. That's okay too, yes. Oh, so like yes. technical stuff. There's a number of questions about your technical process of kind of creating these collages and these Okay, so in the actual image creation, so I will use photography, I will use pen and ink illustrations, or sometimes pen and ink illustrations over photography, collage. Sometimes I print the pictures out, physically collage them. Sometimes I uh, digitally collage them. Sometimes I physically paint them. The washes are usually um, 
practical ink washes that I've created, scanned and used as a palette to drag and drop in digitally. Um, every page has a different story as to how it was created, depending on the needs I felt of the individual image. Did you like ever put them in something like Adobe? Oh yeah, so I use the full Adobe yeah, Creative Suite, right. yeah, for sure. But um, my favorite thing to use is glue and scissors. Um, but it's not very practical as a, like if you're gonna work as a job, capital J maybe in this case, <laughs> job, um, it's not practical to do practical illustration. It is more practical to do digital illustration than analog if you're going to meet your deadlines. Yeah, I was wondering that because one of your pages came up very rastery. Yeah. Oh, this one page, yeah. We had a uh, issue with the printer there. That one particular page is not on purpose. That is just a printing problem. What about the, your... Uh, uh, it printed the preview image rather than the full res image. Oh. Yeah. See? Yeah, you feel my pain. <laughs> yeah. I work in uh, print media. But you know, in a way, the part of me that knows that you can't fight against the, cause, the existential cosmic horror <laughs> knows that no matter how well you plan, something's going to go wrong. It just reminds me of it there when I see that horribly rasterized page. It also did it to your photo. Uh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> but thanks for pointing it out. <laughs> thanks for pointing it out. There's always someone who will point out what went wrong. A lot of people want to know about the color schemes that you're looking at too, and how you have these blues and these reds, and you tend to all you, you tend to have like, to me anyway. I'm, I'm not as visually minded, but some people. But to me, it seems like you're really thinking in terms of the design of two pages. Yeah, I try to spread. think of the two-page spread when I can. It doesn't always work out the way I want it, but um, the high-minded approach to Midnight City's color scheme was that comics were originally printed in four colors. Like a combination of four colors overlaid would make the full color book and I thought wouldn't it be fun if I pulled out four colors and used them one at a time through the book to mean different things so the yellows and the blues and the reds and the, you know like just have it kind of be symbolic so the red you know, I mean the red page in the morgue is intended to be emotive right it's cold it's cold all the way along and the act of cutting open a body which should be clinical something that you just do in a cold fashion is the warmest part in the book because it's actually, a, the thing in it is alive. It's not, they're not visiting death there, but life. The corpse blossom. Yeah. Blossom out. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about the corpse blossom itself? Like, cause a lot, a number of people were wondering about the monster design as right. well as the creative design. And specifically if you saw that corpse blossom as being uh, symbolic of any particular thing. Uh, ooh. Is it symbolic? I mean, yeah. Yes, it is. And all of your books have these titles. We're only looking at Course Blossom, but you know, you've got Flesh Tree, Body Orchid. So they're all, you know, a kind of fleshy adjective than a, you know, or, or like a, a plant, a noun, uh, which is kind of in keeping with the Lovecraftian, you know, plant animal hybridized creatures. Well, and I was being a little bit tongue in cheek in this idea that I wanted it to be like a grow, literally a growing threat, right? So it goes from, right? Uh, blossom to tree to orchard right it just like gets sort of scales up in that way but also those are places where you're supposed to find abundance and the only abundance here is the horror <laughs> um but uh i became increasingly obsessed with in the in the research of this book 
I would. Is there anybody here who is uh, like a zoologist or like a marine biologist or is like leaning in that direction? No. Okay. Good. Because <laughs> the sea is full of the most terrible creatures. Like Lovecraft didn't even come close to imagining the horrors that wait for you at the bottom of the ocean. So what I did was I took this idea of these barnacles. There's a type of barnacle that exists. I'm not even making this up. All right. It's a barnacle. And it attaches itself to, the, to a crab. And then it eats through the crab's shell. And then it grows its organs and takes over the crab's organs. And then once it has got control of the crab's nervous system, it changes the crab's sex to female from whatever it was, right? <laughs> then impregnates it. And then scuttles its way where other crabs are laying their little, having their little crab babies and has its barnacle babies so that they spread onto those crabs as they're being born and the whole cycle continues. And crabs can't tell the difference, but a person can because the crabs that have been infected by these barnacles turn white. So these zombie death, white death crabs scuttle along the bottom of the ocean looking for healthy crabs to release their horrible, monstrous, parasitic invasion on and I thought wouldn't that be cool in like up on land and among people right yes so it sounds like the movie species. yeah it's species it's similar to that similar to that in this notion of like an invasive parasitic um, monster but so what I basically did was I just took like a sea creature I thought would be really messed up as if it attached to people and uh, then thought if I'm mixing in so that the biology of the creature sort of goes like this in the broad strokes. <coughs> that, and then we never actually addressed this anywhere in any of the books. This was just me figuring out how it would work. That the creature feeds on epinephrine, right? And so in order to get lots and lots of epinephrine, right, which is like an adrenaline byproduct, uh, it needs to be in action situations all the time. So what better person to connect itself to than someone who dresses up and fights crime all the time, right? Um, and then because people are horrible and they are attracted to power, of course, those people who are in those positions would have their pick of their litter, uh, pun intended in a way, for where to propagate and how to spread. So w let's say you got that idea, just as yeah. a bit of a case study. So you got this idea of this corpse blossom and this barnacle. So at this moment where you've got seized on that particular idea and its development, at that point, do you already have Midnight City? You're trying to find a monster to propagate it? Or is this kind of giving birth to the Midnight City concept? So in this particular construct, what I had sold to the publisher was a one-paragraph description that it would be Pulp Era and Golden Age heroes versus H.P. Lovecraft and H.G. Wells monsters. Then I had to make the thing. And once I had started, I knew that I wanted it to be a murder mystery just because I like murder mysteries. And so it would be fun. Um, and all I knew for sure is that I wanted an autopsy scene at the beginning. Um, and then the deadline structure meant that I couldn't second guess too much of what I was doing. I just had to start. So at the same time as I was working on some of the um, pages to send to the publisher and to prove to them that I could do the project, I was also madly designing the creatures and figuring out what the ecology would be. I didn't know if I would ever actually use it 
research is a fun hole to fall into. It feels like work. The good thing about research is it feels like work, um, but it's actually procrastination. Um, so uh, at a certain point, I just had to stop trying to come up with stuff and just use it on the page. And then once I had sort of the first volume of Midnight City finished, even roughly, like roughed out, those rules I had to adhere to for the rest of the story. So this blends into a number of questions about your actual process. So you've, so you've now got the um, idea fleshed out to the point where you've got these, you know, coarse blossoms. That's the sort of root of, you know, w what it is. Um, do you start writing? Do you start drawing? Are you writing and drawing in tandem? Like, how are you actually developing it up into a book? Like, in terms of a process? Yes. Yes, what? Like, yeah. Are you just like doing whatever it is you, you think to do that day? In this particular one, I just did whatever I had time to do that day because I was also a full-time teacher at that time. So I was scripting, writing, illustrating, doing the book design, coming up with some marketing materials all around a full-time job at the same time. Um, and also, you know, being a father and a husband. So and you don't have a script first? In this case, I didn't have a script first. What I did was I made a rough plan for... Um, the book, which I thought originally would be 85 pages, and then it got so out of control that the only intelligent thing to do was to split it into three volumes, um, which in retrospect I realized was my psyche's desperate attempt to extend the deadline. <laughs> right? So then I asked the publisher, hey, do you think we could extend this, make it bigger? Um, they liked that idea, so here we are with three volumes. So once I knew that I only had to finish the first one and I could figure out exactly how it ended later, then I found all the blocks come out and I was back to the races. It was one of the first times actually creatively and professionally where the deadline and the requirements of a day-to-day -day life really changed how I would normally approach a project. Normally what I like to do is I like to have the whole thing uh, written out a beat at a time. So if I know a project's gonna be 120 pages, I'll write down um, what happens by the end of every page, visually. Right, so just a little note. Yes? Why the pages aren't numbered. It's a pretty common convention of comics not to number pages. Um, so there's no particular reason. The uh, final editorial decision was not to number them. Um, in my books previous and since, uh, I push for page numbers usually. Yeah. So sorry. Makes it hard to study, I guess, right? Turn to the blue yeah, page with the tentacles on the face, right? It's harder than turn to chapter four, I guess. Uh, did that answer that question? Uh, a little bit. Uh, so normally you would like to have, basically, you, 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 you don't write a script so much as you write out what's going to happen oh, on that so page. I'll, I'll figure out visually in beats or thumbnails. So if it's quicker as a sentence, I'll write as a sentence, you know, they find the house, right? If, it's, if I have a particular idea in mind, I'll do a rough thumbnail illustration. So they call it a thumbnail because you can cover it up with your thumb, right? Like a really small little map, a visual map, where I will lay out the little elements of the drawing. Um, those become useful later. Once I have a, the sort of the whole plan together that way, I can scan in those little thumbnails, blow them up to be uh, 12 by 18, and it gives me a rough map of what I was planning. Um, a really awful map, but it gives me something to build up on. So you're not writing a traditional script, a comic script in any way? 
No. For your own stuff. Would you be for doing that for stuff. somebody else? I work from other comic scripts, yeah. traditional scripts, and I write traditional scripts. But in in my somewhat boisterous opinion, I think that comics work best when the author and the artist have a strong enough relationship that the author can get out of the artist's way. So whenever I can, if I'm writing for an illustrator, I will simply ask them, given that I think this is the plan, how would you approach that visually? Because what they can do with their skill set is different than what I can do with mine, or I would illustrate it myself, right? Do you prefer writing or illustrating then, or do you, do you not see it as a disconnected? I don't see them as disconnected. Well, because I, I think you should build the day you want, right? So in my day, I want to write, I want to illustrate, and I want to have total control. So if I write for other illustrators, I get one box ticked. If I illustrate for other writers, I get the others. And if I write and illustrate my own, I can have that control that I so desperately crave. Because sometimes you just want it the way you want it, and you don't mind if it's bad, right? You don't mind if it's hard. You don't mind if it's unclear. It's just how you wanted to have done it. Yes? So is there a time where you're collaborating with other people and just kind of think to yourself, like, I could do this better myself? Is there a time I collaborate with other <laughs> people where I think question. <laughs> I could just do it better? Never. You could always, <laughs> no, yeah, you do. You do, but that's just your ego talking, right? And a good collaboration is about recognizing that the reason you're collaborating is because your ego isn't big enough to get the project off the ground. Like, your ego is in the way, actually, of the project. How do you decide what to fight about, though? Because there are times, I mean, I'm not saying I know a personal story about this or anything, but, but as you know from working with other people, like there's, there's things you're willing to fight for and things you're just going to let them do what they want. Yeah. How do you decide which is which? Especially um, if it's somebody else's project. Because I've been on people's projects where it's like, again, I'm working for them, but it's like, this thing... No, I just touched the table. This thing yeah. is non-negotiable. And they're like, it's my project. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, then I'm off it if we can't do this thing. And, and like, it's sometimes very unclear why to me. Like, I can come up with my reasons. Okay, yeah, well. But if like, you, how do you decide what, what you're going to, you know. What hills I die on. Yeah, like what hills you're going to die on. Whether it's your stuff or somebody else's stuff. Because I had worked so long as a teacher and because I loved teaching, and every day as a teacher was a day I considered a joyful day to get up and go to work. Um, I didn't, the books I made along the way, uh, I turned down way more projects than I did. Uh, people were offering me lots of different stuff and I, I didn't need to do it, right? It wasn't like the job I had to do. So I got into this habit of if I didn't think that I wanted to do it instead of sleeping, or instead of spending time with my loved ones, then I said no. And only the projects that I felt like were a good trade for those other things were worth doing. Because that's what I had to do. As a, someone with a full-time job, if you take on a full-time job as a writer and illustrator at the same time, and you have a family, you gotta scoop the time away from other places, right? And so I had to want to do it so much that I'd stay up anyway. But here's the thing, and I don't know if it's the same, this is maybe not a universal experience, but it's been my experience, um, that starting the right kind of creative project is not unlike falling in love. When you fall in love, 
And those of you who have been in love uh, will know of what I speak. The notion of the clock disappears entirely from your life. It's simply, when do I get to spend time with them again? Right? And when you're spending time with them, the notion that you would require rest or sustenance is ridiculous. You get everything you could possibly want from that other person. Um, that's what the beginning of a creative project is like for me. I will forego all other reasonable limits in order to get at it. And so when I feel that drive, I do that project. And if I don't feel that drive, I usually put those limits in place. Would you say the beginning? That's the beginning of the project. That's the beginning of the project. <laughs> How at do the you end do of the, the rest of it? Just like, uh, so my wife and I have been together now 19 years, and uh, it's like that. That's how you get to the end of the project, <laughs> you just right? You're committed. You're committed and you work at it, right? And you fall in love a little bit over and over again along the way, right? And, but why you finish, why you stay in it, right, is because you know that by staying committed and not being so floody and not just giving in to every whim and desire will result in something that you've made together. In this case, the project is giving to you. You, you and the project are making something together. So, so you're just constantly trying to remember, like when it's going badly, you're like, yeah, you remember. Okay, I gotta remember why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, let's face it. I mean, I'm in uh, it now. You're a married man too, right? You know that if it's going badly, it's your fault. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, because and if it isn't your fault, somehow in the back, it's your fault. No, what I mean is, all relationships require work from both parties, mm -hmm. and so that if you're in a position where it's not working. Right? Part of the blame rests in you, with you. Right? Not all of it, for sure. Not in every instance. But if two people are endeavoring to be collaborators in a relationship or in a uh, creative relationship and it's breaking down, you have to stop. You have to get your ego in check and say, okay, what part of this is my fault? Right? And there are lots of times when I've been in projects where I felt like if you just let me do it my way, we could be finished already. But expediency isn't necessarily the reason to do it another person's way. Right? Sure. I mean, it's interesting you compare to relationship. Because the other thing that sometimes you'll, you, you, it's easy to forget in a project is that maybe the project itself isn't the goal. No, not but at like all. You're building no. a relationship and like five projects from now is really where it's going to pay off. Potentially. So, I don't even think of it in that way because that's the that's no, the business I mean, in terms side of it. like the, the relationship, like like trying to think beyond what you're doing in this moment. Yeah. Okay. So for me, because maybe that sucks. <laughs> a creative project is a meditative project, right? You should not undertake to do something. In my opinion, you should not undertake to do a creative project if you're not willing to look hard at yourself. Because that's where the good stuff is. The only good parts, in my estimation, of Midnight City are the parts where I took something of myself that was difficult to talk about and put it on the page. Right? I'll let you guys figure out what that is in there. But the point is that every creative act should be an act of self-exploration. You are trying to conquer yourself. You're not trying to conquer the world. You're not trying to conquer sales charts. You're trying to look at something worth doing. Um, when I do writing exercises, you know, we're, we're 
sometimes I teach creative uh, workshops. One of the writing exercises I do is I say, okay, let's come up with plots. We spend an hour, we all come up with plots and crazy ideas and you know all this highfalutin stuff. And then I reaffirm to those assembled that their ideas are terrible, right? Just as my ideas are terrible. Plot is useless without the important stuff. And then I have the people write down something that they wouldn't want anyone else to know about themselves. And if you can take your plot and make your story actually about that thing that you're having trouble facing in yourself, now you have a reason to spend a year working on it. You have a reason to self-examine, to explore, to challenge yourself and to say, okay, yes, it's a book about monsters, right? But it's actually a book about how other people see you and the mask you wear and why you put it on in the first place, right? Those things are worth looking at, right? Who cares if a monster gets punched? Like, that is not <laughs> going to get you up in the morning to work on a book, right? What's going to get you up in the morning to work on a book, particularly if it's going to be labeled as simply entertainment, right? Is that you're not doing it for entertainment. You're doing it for self-discovery. Any uh, other questions? People want to jump on? I think we have about 15 minutes, right? Let's talk practical stuff, like... A lot of people want to know about your editing process. Like, how do you, what does your editing process look like? I think it's hard to envision for people. Uh, I know I find What do they mean? What, like, edit how? Well, this is the question. So, what you, you draw, you know, you draw your panels up and you've got your two pages. Now, you got, you know, a 100 page book, let's say. No, the editing happens so long you, before that. How do you edit? Yeah, the editing happens long before that. Okay, so okay. it's all so, happening in. So. Let's clarify the difference between editing. Copy editing is when they look for mistakes, right? Like practical, like the colon is in the wrong spot, right? That was an autopsy joke there too, actually. <laughs> um, and a substantive edit is when you look at how the story is actually constructed and why it moves and is assembled in the way that it is. So um, you do your copy edit last. You, have some, you pay somebody else who is better at looking for mistakes, should have had you looking over the last proof, for example, right? to look for practical errors. But a substantive edit, edit has to happen before, in, in my opinion, has to happen before you begin the labor. You have to know whether or not the story is going to work. And so how I edit that is I, um, well, there's a few different ways. I talk it over with other people who I know are writers um, or filmmakers or poets or sculptors. Cross-pollination is essential. Find people who aren't doing stuff in the medium that you're doing and ask them if it makes sense. Because if it doesn't make sense to them, well, it should. It should be able to make sense to everybody, right? So give that a shot. Um, and then I also have a Wednesday night gaming group that I would take the plots of uh, whatever graphic novel I was working on, construct it as a role-playing game element, and then have those people try to break that system. Uh, Sometimes I would take uh, the project to a creative retreat, show it to people, right? Like there's a lot of different ways in which you figure out whether a story works. But then at a certain point, you just have to ask yourself, am I in love with it, right? Do I like it? Like, will this be fun? Can I learn something about myself? And if so, it's worth, worth, the, uh, worth the labor. So you're doing all this like with thumbnail sketches and so on or, or like... Are you actually designing pages at that sort of a point? So I do... Or do you do a visual edit at some point? So I don't work in order. So 
a lot of people make comics one page at a time, you know, page one, page two, page three, and so on. Um, I make comics by figuring out what my scenes will be, and then if I like those scenes, I will fully illustrate and write those scenes non-sequentially, like in a non-sequitur way. So like a project I'm working on now, I have the a scene that I think will be in Act 3, more or less finished, and I have a scene that I think probably is in Act 2, more or less finished, and I have a scene that's from Act 1, more or less finished, but the stuff in the middle, I don't yet know what that is, right? So do you ever have a scenario where you just, you end up losing that scene? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, so for uh, Midnight City, you know, it's like all told is maybe like 375 pages. There's probably 575 pages that I illustrated for it. Right, so I cut 200 pages. Like fully completed. Yeah. You know, so what do you do with that? Um, I usually cut it up. I live by a, a motto that anyone who's heard me talk before has probably heard, which is do not eliminate, transmute. So, um, and as a collage artist, it makes it great because I have all these pages that are cast off from other things that I can recontextualize and put them back into a new project. Can you take, give an example of something from Midnight City that was edited out in that sort of a way? Can, can you remember like a scene or some sort of story element that you end up taking out? Yeah, so I had a, uh, okay, so I had a love scene with um, Jolly Roger and uh, The Risk. I thought I'd have this great rom-com moment in the book and oh, it would be so great because it'll, it'll like lift up and make light so that when I bring it back down to the terror, it will be good. The problem with that is that in a film, you know, a funny joke that lightens the mood in horror takes a moment, just a moment to do. But in comics, that same moment is maybe 20 pages, 25 pages, just to have a stupid joke in it. Uh, slowed down the narrative completely. There was a lot of character building in it, which was unnecessary. I mean, in, for what I was trying to do with the project, like definitely necessary for me to find those characters, but in the end, ultimately unnecessary. Right. And also, the way I was approaching sexuality in the book was this outsider's view. Like, you know, there's a part, I don't know if it's in the first one. It's the first, the first one, one is, there's the sex scene in the first book, right? In that one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, this idea of Jolly Roger watching it happen, and it's kind of gross. Like, you're not like, ooh, sensuality. You're like voyeuristic, right? This, this, this idea of the mask that we put on things, I wanted to be there so I didn't want to put a healthy relationship in the book because it also spoiled kind of the tone that they're all these like broken horrible people I didn't want to give them too much um, sparkling humanity so how do you plan out uh, a project like that when, when, when you when you're working in this like how do you say to somebody oh it'll be done by such and such a day when you're like your process is so nonlinear and you know, things are going in and out of it all the time. Yeah, the process is nonlinear, but time marches. The indelible march of time is easily measured by the clock, right? So I know how many pages I can accomplish in a day, and as long as I show Which up every day. Uh, it can be two to three, okay. right? Um, like and if, finished pages. Uh, so I do the finishes in sort of the last month. So for me, I can get two or three pages kind of ready to be finished in a day which means you know you can then you just multiply that right so in 30 in 30 days of real work then you can have a 90 page project more or less ready to show to the publisher or to an editor right which is the key thing and because i often throw out so much stuff right i'm not worried about them being necessarily 
perfect. I'm just worried that they are clear enough that to a person who is a bookseller, my message can come across. Now, I'm in a unique position now because I have publishers to do that with who understand my process. When I was starting out, that was an utter nightmare because no one will agree to do it that way. <laughs> Under no circumstances will a publisher say, oh, the Kamichuk method, perfect, right? They will just think that you're in completely insane. So how you get projects finished is you finish them first and then you show them to people finished, right? And then if they like it and they want more, you get them to agree that you can give them more. And once you've signed that you'll give them more, then you explain how you did it. So, what so that their terror doesn't drive them out of the contract. So what drove you to do this sort of work in the first place? And, and how did you overcome these sorts of early, this early resistance? Because you were doing things in a very unusual way. So why didn't I quit? Why didn't you quit, basically? I uh, always ask people, why didn't they quit? Yeah, because I wasn't doing it for, for anyone else. right? Like Because I endeavored to look inward in the creative process, every unpublishable project was a way where I said, hey, I learned this about me. right? Um, and you know, the great part about like being in your 20s, say, and trying to publish stuff and trying to look inwardly by creating things is that like your lives are so messed up, right? Like you have all the baggage of your parents, right? You have all the baggage of your friends. You have your deep trusted allies that you've come to rely on all through high school who scatter to the four winds as soon as the real world arrives, right? So you have all of these disparate parts of yourself scattered. So for me, looking at and working on and laboring to create stuff as a self-meditative process was not it didn't matter that no one wanted to publish it because I knew when it was done, I was slightly better, at least maybe not better, better is the wrong word. I knew more about why I did the things I did. That's a better way to say it. And that's never bad. Kind of a dumb question, but why do the monsters in, say that your book, uh, they're not killable, whereas if you put them, like the heroes could you know, overpower them, would give them more hope, more positivity? Okay, so uh, for the podcast crowd that may not have heard that, um, why are the monsters unkillable? Because wouldn't giving the heroes some hope make for a better story? It'd make for a different type of story. And because I was aiming at the Lovecraftian mythos of no human endeavor can succeed against the cosmos, um, it seemed fitting that they were unkillable. I feel Lovecraft goes nihilistic with that, whereas you're not necessarily being nihilistic with it. Yeah, like, spoiler alert, everyone dies at the end of Midnight City, like, including the whole world, but the uh, characters that need to find themselves in each other do before the end. Yeah, you have very much that there's grace in a struggle yeah. sort of ethos, whereas Lovecraft is just, you know, the struggle is meaningless. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and to be fair, chaos. it doesn't even, like, it's not that the whole world ends, it's that people don't win. Right? The world just becomes something else. Something else grows over the surface of the earth and they just have to cope with that. And they're having fun. Well, no. <laughs> but the other things the are The monsters having fun. are having fun, I yeah, mean. The, the and the monster. World, the world marches on. And it's just one thing eating another, right? The monsters are themselves not monstrous. Like, they're not insidious. They simply eat people, right? So you don't get mad at a rabbit for eating a carrot. Right? If a carrot could scream, you might find it distasteful to watch, but you don't get mad at the carrot for, for the rabbit for doing its 
you know, inherent thing. So should you really be mad at these horrible mollusk creatures that burrow out a hollow human cavity and live inside of it? They're just doing what they're meant to do, right? Maybe we'll end with that, you know, fine sentiment. All right. Um, thanks so much for coming and... Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone for being here. That was part one of the Gregory Kamichik uh, series, part two next week. Uh, make sure you stick around. Uh, subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss it if you're not already subscribed. Um, and if uh, you are subscribing and you're enjoying this podcast, please do me a favor and share this with somebody, somebody else you think would like this podcast, uh, either this episode or the podcast in a general sense. Uh, if you don't like this podcast, I would question why you just listen to it for an hour. But, you know, perhaps there's some sort of masochistic individual if so you probably know other masochistic individuals so uh, please share it with them let uh, them torture themselves uh, and we'll we'll talk to you next week uh, with Gregory Kmichik again um, some more student questions a different group uh, different questions and a really um, you know great uh, Gregory Kmichik so have a good week and keep writing the right wrong way <laughs> We got a